This is the Urban Political, the podcast on urban theory, research, and activism. Welcome to the Urban Political. This is Markus Kipp, and I'm joined by Ross Beveridge、uh, with an episode on graffiti and street art. We are lucky today to have Emma Arnold, Jeff Ross, and John Lennon to talk us through this fascinating and very urban topic. And its political relevance. So, welcome,、uh, Jeff, John, and Emma. Before we do some conceptual clarification about graffiti and street art,、um, tell us a bit about how you became interested in this topic and what draws you really into this.、Uh, so, yeah, maybe Emma, do you want to get us going? Sure.、Um, well, I'm an urban and cultural geographer. Uh, my interest in graffiti and street art really revolves around the spatial space. So, how space is used, who that space is used by, how that space is controlled, policed.、Um, so, it's really sort of my key interests around the spatial practice of graffiti and street art. I'm also、um, mostly using visual methods and particularly、uh, photography. So I spend a lot of time taking photographs of graffiti and street art. So I use photography as a way to study the urban aesthetic politics of graffiti and street art. And I'm also a, a visual artist. I have some background in street art myself, and I'm sort of familiar with the practice, both academically、uh, and artistically. And I should say also that I'm、um, I'm based at the University、uh, of Oslo in Norway. So. My expertise is mostly in the Norwegian context and specifically、uh, in Oslo. Jeff, do you want to continue? Oh, so um, thanks. Um, I am、uh, I'm a political scientist by training, and I'm a criminologist by virtue of uh, uh, where I've worked、uh, for the past, you know, twenty five years.、Um, I have had a long standing interest in.、Um, Political participation,、um, both violent and non-violent political participation,、uh, policing, urban issues, street culture,、um, and uh, I, uh, prior to、uh, going to university,、uh, I was very much、uh, involved in、uh, visual art,、um, and uh, uh, for a variety of reasons, decided not to take that、uh, path. Uh, and I, in many respects,、uh, the, the field of graffiti and, and street art is 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 coming full circle、uh, for me.、Um, and、uh, the questions、uh, that the、uh, subject matter,、um, you know,、uh, raises、uh, are fascinating, interesting, and, and, and close to my heart. So,、um, and, and、uh, it, the, the among other things I like about the subject matter is that the people who are studying it. Uh, come from a variety of different fields, so the interdisciplinary nature of the, the field is is really really attractive to me. And、uh, so I'm John Lennon. I'm a associate professor of English, actually, at the University of South Florida. So as Jeff was saying, like you know, people who are involved in this field are from all different types of、uh, departments. And so my work is I'm working class literature. I'm an American studies person. My interest, though, in graffiti actually comes more. I was born and raised in Queens, New York, and、uh, you know. My dad hates graffiti. He hated graffiti. I,、uh, you know, 
one of the first memories I have of my dad is like going out to wipe off the graffiti off of his, off the lampposts and, and, the, and the fence in our yard. Um, so I grew up kind of in that mentality, but as a kid going into the city and riding the subways and just seeing all of these kind of wonderful and amazing kind of graffiti that was very, very different from who I was and where I was growing up. I was always fascinated by it. You know, I, I, and, and I've always been fascinated by graffiti, went to grad school, kind of did some walking tours, did some kind of um, uh, classes that we talked about graffiti, had my first job um, after grad school was back in New York. So I was in Brooklyn and I wrote an article about kind of gentrification, looking at graffiti and gentrification, street art. And that's kind of where I was. And it was just always just dabbling in on that field. And then 2011 to here square and the Egyptian revolution happened. And suddenly what I was seeing through Twitter and seeing on the internet, it was a very different type of graffiti than the people I was hanging out with who were graffiti writers, um, the graffiti that I was seeing, it was just something else. And I was just fascinated by it. Uh, and, you know, I started following some folks on Twitter. I started, um, you know, actually interviewing some people in, from, from the United States and um, calling up actually people in Egypt and talking to people who were participating in it. And I was just, I, I, what I, I, it came down to a question for me is like, when bullets are right, you know, coming down at you from people's, from, from the police on top of buildings or like when your friend's blood is in the streets, why would anyone stop to write graffiti? And that question really was the impetus of really the next 10 years of just really going around as much as I could around the world and interviewing graffiti writers, artists, activists, people who've never thought of themselves as writers, but were doing graffiti and really getting involved in that. So that's really where my kind of interest in, in the subject has really evolved into. Thank you, everyone. Um, I think John's already uh, broached these these topics, um, but perhaps we could just get started by thinking about uh, what graffiti and street art are, how we might define them, what kind of actors are, are involved in them, if you're thinking of uh, approaching in a kind of analytical way, um, what kind of motivations and intentions do they have, or how should we understand them? Uh, obviously, this is a is a, an area that generates conflict, as we've as we just heard from uh, from from John. Um, and what kind of different ways do they engage with uh, cities, and how does that vary uh, around the world? So there's a series of questions there, but perhaps we can go back to Emma first. Sure. I think when it comes to defining graffiti and street art, I think it can be both a very simple issue, but also a very complex one. And I think it depends on a, a number of issues, maybe, or a number of questions, maybe, um, where are you asking the question? So not just geographically, but in what spaces? Is it in an academic space? Is it with the public, with, with politicians? I think it could also be um, who is asking the question, who is asking what graffiti and street art is, and, and who is defining it? And then also maybe when is the question being asked because graffiti and street art, the definitions have changed and evolved over time. So I think um, 
you know, if I were to define it just very simply, I would say graffiti is really an involvement with, with letters and writing and text um, and using spray paint. So you could use it really like break it down stylistically in terms of medium. Um, and then street art is often more figurative. It's pictures. It can be stencils, stickers, murals. It's, it's a bit broader. So I think um, that's one way to approach it. But of course, it, it really depends sort of on the geographic context, the political, the sociolo sociological context as well. Um, so I usually try to avoid defining things as much as possible. And I think categories can get a bit problematic, especially because with graffiti and street art, there's a lot of fluidity between it. So a lot of street artists will have their origins in graffiti. Some will do both. Um, and um, yeah, there's a lot, I think it's a lot more ambiguous than people would like to sort of, uh, sort of paint it. I, I, I agree with Nama. Um, and, and definitions of both graffiti and street art are, are complicated. Um, uh, a couple of years back, I edited uh, the Rutledge uh, handbook on graffiti and street art. And uh, in the very first chapter, I spent a considerable amount of time uh, looking at the different definitions and um, came up with like a four part type definition or, or a typology of definitions. And uh, we have to be careful about distinguishing between uh, graffiti and street art uh, style um, and uh, understanding the notion of warranted and unwarranted or, or legal and illegal. And these are, these are uh, also subject to uh, a definitional kind of quagmires. Um, and, uh, you know, to complement what, what Emma said, I, I think that um, when, when I think of graffiti in general, I think of um, uh, writing or marks uh, or etching on surfaces and a whole variety of different surfaces where the um, uh, permission is not granted to the person or persons who are, are doing that kind of, uh, uh, of work or activity. Um, and, uh, where, and this can be through, you know, uh, anywhere from markers to, to paint, to spray paint, to etching solution, uh, to reverse graffiti, where you're using a, uh, uh some sort of, sp uh, spray, uh, water pressure to remove, um, uh, layers of a surface. Um, and street art, I, I see more as, as more, I wouldn't necessarily say complicated, but it, uh, it involves a lot more different techniques, including uh, using stickers, including um, uh, applying things to surfaces, um, uh, posters, non-commercial postering, uh, stencils, that sort of thing. Uh, and, and so that, that is part of the, the broader, broader range of, 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 uh, of graffiti and street art and, and graffiti and street art, at least the definitions are often mis, mis, misused, misapplied or, and misunderstood. And so that's what, what, what I find, I've, part, part, that's part of the reason why I find the study of, of graffiti and street art uh, interesting, fascinating, uh, and maybe frustrating too, but that the frustration is also what I find kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll underline, I think Emma and Jeff did a great job at that. And I completely agree with everything they said, you know, and let me just add and kind of move it a little bit this way. I am tired of the conversation about what is graffiti. 
Um, I, I think if you want to, especially if, if you want to look at this um, from a scholarship point of view, and you want to look at the scholarship on contemporary scholarship on graffiti and street art is about 30 years around, if you want to think about it that way. The first or one really strong thread in the first part of graffiti scholarship was what is it? And there has been this constant trying to define what it is. And it can get very, very nuanced. And especially if you go into social sciences, it's gonna have these definitions that are gonna be very, very narrow. Um, there's value in that. And I certainly do agree that there's a lot of value in trying to figure out what it is. My interest in graffiti and street art though, is not really what it is, but what it does. And that really fascinates me more. So whether it's technically graffiti or technically street art, or even easing into kind of this idea of muralism or things like that, there are definitely differences between all of those things. And maybe I'm wrong, but I usually bleed those together in many ways because I think it's so fluid, those boundaries, that it doesn't, we can spend so much time navel gazing about that, or we can actually explain, well, how does racial capitalism get involved in the story of understanding these marks on walls? How does this reflect the gentrification that is happening within an, a particular urban environment? Those are more the interesting questions for me. And if I have to write something and I'm spending five pages trying to define it, I'm bored of that, and I'm sure anybody reading that is going to be bored of that, and I'd rather just really explore what it does. Now, again, I just want to underline, I do think there are differences, and maybe I'm a little too cavalier in my, my kind of grouping them all together, and, and I do think other scholars will have problems when I write about things like that, because I do kind of blend them together. But for me, I'm more interested in what it does and what it is. Let's go along that route uh, that you just charted, um, John. So what, what what does it do? And explain a little more who, who are the actors who are actually involved and what they what are they trying to do and, and what are the issues that they are facing then in uh, urban environments? Yeah, so I mean, I want to go back to what Emma said. It's like it really is about specific geographic areas at a specific time. And I just want to definitely kind of astra, uh, put an asterisk on that, like that, or highlight that, I should say. I think that's really the, the important thing. And so each kind of story that it, one of us tells, you know, something in Oslo uh, that Emma really knows a lot about is going to be different than something in Washington, D.C. or something in Tahir Square, right? So it's, it all is going to be different. Um, I guess one way to, to, to kind of give an example of this um, and, and the bleeding together of, is it illegal? Is it illegal? What's going on and all that stuff? One of, the, one of the ways we can talk about this is the Black Lives Matter murals that have been appearing throughout both the world, but mostly within the United States and pretty much every state within the United States. So just some con context, 2020 happens, Donald Trump is you know, getting his white nationalist followers really excited and kind of trying to um, get reelected. And in the summer of 2020, We have COVID is happening. We have another death of a black man at the hands of a police officer. We have all these things happening in this um, time period. This, this is also a time period where Donald Trump is holding his Bible in front of this uh, St. John's Cathedral uh, in, um, while protesters are being 
uh, gassed um, uh, in the streets. And so what you have is a reaction of the mayor of D.C., who then has completely legal rights on huge, huge letters throughout the streets, right in front of the White House, Black Lives Matter. And it's a big mural, so big that you can see it from outer space, right? And everyone in the liberal kind of democratic, I'm looking at Twitter, I'm looking at Facebook, I'm looking at everybody, and everyone's super, super excited about this. And aha, we're kind of doing a resistance against Donald Trump, and isn't this great? Everyone, not everyone, but a lot of people are is saying this, except for the D.C. chapter of the Black Lives Matter, who writes a statement and calls out Bowser and also this kind of performance politics of Black Lives Matters and the muralism that is there and saying she's saying Black Lives Matter. And yet she just asked for an increase in the funding of the police department in Washington, D.C. Now, what the mural does, it universalizes the idea of Black Lives Matter to a point that it means really relatively nothing compared to what the original um, phrasing is being used when Trevor Martin was killed and the three activists uh, kind of created the hashtag and really is calling out the police uh, racism against Black people, calling for either radical reform or abolition. That's what kind of Black Lives Matter originally started for. And then the performance and the universalizing of the muralism has actually undercut that message and allowed everyone to say, look, Black Lives Matter, but doesn't actually call for any reforms. So you have that happening in DC and that's a state run who's allowing, who wants this mural to happen. In Tulsa, Oklahoma, there is another Black Lives Matter that is put onto the streets um, actually on a historic street where a hundred years earlier, white people completely decimated the whole um, black population, killing a number of people. It was called Black Wall Street, destroyed that whole area. They, some activists wrote illegally Black Lives Matter onto the street. Uh, another mural, group of people got together, put it on the streets. Now you have a Republican mayor of Tulsa, generational uh, mayor, of Tulsa, who has to figure out what to do with this illegal mural. You can erase graffiti, but how do you erase Black Lives Matter and how can you do that in a way that is not gonna seem completely, uh, it is not gonna cause a lot of alarm. So the mayor decides to rest on bureaucracy and he has different um, committees formed to to review this mural. And what they were able to do was erase the mural because they said, not the mayor is not gonna say it doesn't, it's not, it's not right. What he's doing is he's, he's saying that um, it, it goes against the uh, certain laws and we have to do this because if we don't do this, then other people are gonna put stuff on the streets and all that stuff. So it's, it's a way to take this illegal mural or illegal graffiti, however you want to say it, and kind of erase it using bureaucratic ways to do that. Same summer in Tampa, Florida, there's Black Lives Matter graffiti and murals throughout the uh, downtown area. A group of folks did not like that. And so what they got together is in front of the police department, they have this huge mural 
that says blue lives matter. Again, an illegal mural, didn't go through any process, just put it on the streets. In front of the police station with the cops watching them doing this, by the way. Same thing, how do you deal with this graffiti, murals, how do you deal with this? That is a, illegal, but now what does this, it can the Tampa mayor actually erase? Blue Lives Matter, how would that cause? What would that cause in terms of her kind of um, uh, view by people? And so she leaves it alone. She says it's illegal, but she leaves it alone. And the, what I wanna kind of just show there is three examples of Black Lives Matter murals and how they're all being used by different groups for different agendas, all within city spaces and that they're all complicated. And to understand what these mean, you can't just look and go, oh, Black Lives Matter mural, and just walk away. You have to see how it actually is connected to the city and what are all the different aspects that are connected to allowing it or erasing it. And I hope that kind of answers sort of what, where you were leading with that question. Just to quickly jump in is that the majority of the people uh, residents and, and uh, people who are uh, tourists and or people who come into the city to uh, and they, they they probably do not think twice about the mural right and so it operates or it can operate and this is the same with with graffiti and street art uh, it has its own dynamic and the majority of the people just kind of walk by and they just say this is just background noise um, and it, it, they don't they don't they may or may not engage with it at some level. Um, and so uh, I, I think what's, and I'm, I'm not trying to necessarily take the conversation in a different direction, but uh, when, when I talk about graffiti and street art to other people, especially my students, um, I ask them to imagine themselves in a particular part of a city where there is a lot of graffiti and then pretend, you know, do that, you know, thought experience. Imagine that particular part of the city without any graffiti and street art or even the murals. And what would it look like and what kind of vibe would it put off? Would it be a place that you would feel more or less safe, more or less comfortable? Is it more or less interesting? And if it didn't have that background, let's just call it for lack of a better word, noise, would you be as uh, motivated to spend time there at restaurants, bars, um, you know, engaging in whatever you engage in in that, in that particular area? And the answer is probably no. So it, it does frame, uh, it, frames an, it frames an experience uh, and we can choose to engage with it or not and at different, and at different levels. We can say that there's, there's an appropriate level of graffiti uh, and street art or murals or whatever, and there's, there is not, I, I mean, anyways, I'm just throwing that out for possible discussion, reaction. And I think this is where geographic context really comes into play because um, what you describe a, a neighborhood without graffiti or without a lot of street art basically sounds like a Scandinavian city where, um, you know, order is sort of, you know, one of the most important things about how, how the city is and how it uh, is sort of accessible to the greatest number of people. And for a long time, a lot of cities like Oslo, Stockholm, Helsinki, Copenhagen have had, they have graffiti, but they have also had a long history of very strict anti-graffiti and by extension, anti-street art policies. 
And, and so I think that some of the stories that, that John was just sharing about these political murals, it's, it's very foreign, I think, because people are not using the city here in the same way. And if they are, it's getting erased sort of very quickly and very swiftly. But I think what these stories do is really highlight just how complex graffiti and street art is in, in, in terms of like its urban governance and how many people are implicated. So it's not just, you know, who is writing the graffiti, but it's politicians. And, and I think they have a very important role here. Um, it is the bureaucrats, it is the policy writers, it is also curators, business owners, residents, the public, um, you know, local personalities. And, and this is also really highly geographically, you know, contextual uh, and contingent. Um, so I think it's really interesting that, that we always have to have this, these questions, this sort of in mind of where is this happening? Who is in charge? What is um, the political party in charge as well? Because this can swing back and forth. And we see this in, in Oslo quite a lot where we have a lot of support for street art now coming from the left and especially like the Green Party. Uh, but as soon as a conservative party comes into power and, and is writing the policy, then it, then it changes again. So it kind of swings back and forth even within the, the same city. Yeah, can I just uh, just follow up with that too, with what Emma just said, which is, and I completely agree that not only geographic, also time, and I think that's what Emma really is is emphasizing, which I like, because uh, I've not been to Oslo. I'm kind of interested in this. I, I've been to Copenhagen recently, and I've been to Malmo, and there is now kind of this uh, street art scene that is appearing in those cities, and it, again, non political in terms of you know. Um, the, the content, but I'm just interested in Oslo, have you seen a change in the acceptance of street art, uh, you know? Absolutely. I think what's happened is that, um, you know, had such a strong anti-graffiti sort of history in a lot of these places. And, and what happened is because of that, a really organic street art scene didn't develop like it did in other cities. But as soon as, uh, I think a lot of cities here started seeing the commercial potential and the um, sort of uh, the ways that they could capitalize on having a street art scene, more sort of uh, policies, festivals, um, curators started getting involved. And so you do see a really formalized, I think, street art scene developing. So in, in Oslo recently, you know, just a few years ago, developed a street art action plan, which is really funny when you think about like street art as being a, a generally unsanctioned historically anyways practice and illegal. And then you have municipalities coming in and saying, no, wait a minute, this might help brand a neighborhood or attract tourists. And so I think you're seeing street art at least in Oslo's case, being used as a way to um, not, not gentrify, but really to, as part of a branding strategy almost. So you'll see it on like the tourist website, like you can go on a street art tour now of Oslo and that's sanctioned by the city. So I think there is definitely some big changes and, and also street art festivals are quite popular here. I think in, in Scandinavia and a lot of Nordic countries, um, we like things to be really organized and uh, formalized. 
So I, I think festivals are a big way that street art has come into these cities. Yeah, and I need to underline that too is I, like, I think one of the biggest surprises within the last 10 years is the embracing of street art by Republican or conservative uh, governments is because exactly what Emma was saying. It's like, it, this is a way to brand a neighborhood. This is a way to make money off of a neighborhood. This is a way to make tourists come in and also for folks to feel safe within it. Um, and I think that is a huge move in street art. Now with that, of course, with all these festivals, as, as Emma was saying, this idea of like states wanting to have control over these things as well, it does create a certain type of street art that is definitely that we have to investigate in terms of who's financing it, uh, kind of the racial politics that are involved in this, in these festivals, who actually gets to do the art? Are it local? Is there a connection to a local? Or is it people being, you know, flown in to kind of uh, be part of these things and flown out? You know, those are all the questions that have to be involved when we think about this embracing of street art in the last 10 years. Yeah, it, it's uh, what's happening with in in some cities um, what I'm I, what I see parallels between say graffiti and street art uh, not not the embracing of graffiti and street art but let's just say the the dealing uh, dealing with graffiti and street art by some cities is similar to what cities have done in the past by having uh, by controlling things like uh, drug use and also prostitution. So you have uh, injection sites. So you have uh, an area of a city where prostitution is allowed or permitted like red light districts. And so it's easier to uh, engage in both social control and legal control if uh, those activities are confined to a particular um, uh, space. There may be enabling legislation. Uh, there may be just different kinds of norms uh, that are uh, understood amongst uh, law enforcement when it comes to policing individuals like that. And so it's it's an it, it's it's containing it uh, because they don't want it, the activity to spread to uh, neighboring uh, you know neighboring communities. Uh, so I think that's I think that's all part of the whole kind of graffiti street art scene too that that we're seeing uh, primarily in Europe. Um, and, and so uh, the festivals are part of it. Uh, having mural programs too, uh, Washington DC, for example, I think Philadelphia, for example, too, is what they've done is they've had uh, individuals who were, you know, maybe former graffiti writers or street artists who would practice this uh, activity uh, illegally. They are uh, hired. They are, in some cases, co-opted, uh, contracted to participate in a mural uh, a program where they uh, try to integrate uh, young men and women who may be, you know, inclined to engage in graffiti, and they teach them how to do this, and they find they partner with businesses who want some sort of mural done, and I think there's better and worse models uh, out there, um, and uh, uh, this sort of thing is going on. So it's 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 uh, how much tolerance a city has for it and how they can control it. I think that's all part of the equation in in an urban part of the equation in urban development, urban safety, perceptions of safety, perceptions of disorder, can social control all that sort of thing. Jeff, I love that idea of like thinking of this as like injection sites. That's 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 a great way to kind of think about it. And if you don't mind, like, let me just riff off that a little bit because 
Like that's the idea, right? We will control drug use in this area and this area only as if people aren't going then throughout the city and all that stuff. So it, it's a way to like deal with one issue that's part of a larger issue. However, I, I do think one of the ways to think about this is once you, in, you bring this into areas, it does automatically start spreading from that particular area. Uh, and one example of this is uh, I, I've spent a lot of time in, um, or I've spent a lot of time thinking about Detroit and the new Detroit urban scene that is happening. Um, and, you know, Detroit went through a bankruptcy uh, and it really kind of tried to make a lot of changes within that. Dan Gilbert, who owns Rocket Mortgage, is really one of the big owners of the city. He's owned so many different properties. He has his own security force within downtown. He does a lot within the urban environment. He has been praised um, you know, by, by the media, by corporations of really reviving Detroit and all that stuff. And one of the things that he's done is actually create a huge street art scene so that you know, white, hip, tech-savvy folks will want to move in there and kind of um, revitalize the downtown area. He had Shepard Ferry come in, do a huge um, uh, mural on, on the main building there. He's done a lot with that, and street art is all over there. He has something called the Z Garage, where he bought a huge garage, and he has all murals in there. And if you go online, it'll... It, uh, to visitdetroit.org, I think it is, it'll say like, this Z garage is a UN of garages because it has all these kind of street artists who have, who have done it. It's a garage with some cool murals, I'm not saying that, but it's really hyped up as this new kind of city. He has, Dan Gilbert had tons and tons of money. And so downtown Detroit is the street art capital of the world for a little while and it is beautiful and all that stuff. But, other folks have tried to use the same kind of playbook. So if you go farther out into um, Detroit, there's a neighborhood, it's an African-American neighborhood, it's a poor working class neighborhood, um, and a uh, entrepreneur on, by the name of uh, uh, Dan Weaver uh, bought a building in there uh, on this street. He's a white guy uh, from uh, Wayne State University, bought a building in there. Um, and really wanted to revitalize it. And so he tried to do some things within it. Um, it's a huge building that has a lot of tenants in it. And he's done a lot of, he did a lot of interesting things, but one of the things he wanted to do was he connected with this guy who's a graffiti artist named Syntex, who did a graffiti mural on, on the building. And folks came from, you know, throughout the city to check out this mural. Syntex has this kind of reputation. He's known throughout the, the area. Weaver, really saw this as a, as who knows nothing about street art, knows nothing about graffiti, saw this as an opportunity. And so what he started doing was having folks come in and, and paint murals and graffiti and really graffiti style on different buildings throughout this, trying to come up with this new kind of hotspot that is happening in Eastern Market in Detroit, that is happening in different areas of Detroit. All things seem to go really, really well. Weaver is a white entrepreneur. Syntex is a black um, uh, graffiti writer, okay? Weaver doesn't have as much money to do this. And so what he's, as he's starting to make kind of a name for himself, he then starts bringing outsiders into the neighborhood to paint. 
on these uh, walls. And he had one graffiti writer to, uh, uh, I'm sorry, one street artist, Gaia, G-A-I-A is his name. He's a really well-known kind of street artist who painted an image of um, a victim, an Asian American victim of um, a hate crime onto one of the buildings. Painting over though, Syntex's mural. Syntex did not like this. He then, although no one knows for sure, but it's said that there was black paint all of a sudden on this new mural. Weaver tries to fix it. Syntex says no, he gets approval from the owner of the building where the mural is on to put his own mural on. Weaver cuts ties. Suddenly there's a graffiti war happening in the streets. This is what is described as in the papers um, uh, in Detroit. Um, Syntex then goes after other graffiti writers who are coming into Detroit. One guy, Revoke, who's really famous um, kind of street artist as well, who's being brought in by corporations to beautify Detroit. He is then fighting Revoke, painting over his stuff. Revoke and his crew is painting over Syntex's stuff. It's getting into the newspapers. Weaver doesn't know what he's doing because he's he's doesn't know anything about this at all. It becomes this big kind of, and when I say big, within kind of the scene, it becomes this big controversy. People are taking everyone's different sides and all that stuff. I tell this story because like, this is what happens when you're not Dan Gilbert with millions of dollars who can control the scene. Now you have actually a black graffiti writer who's painting over an image of an Asian American um, uh, hate crime victim being paid for by a white entrepreneur, it gets confusing. And this is where the racial capitalism is all coming into play and how it changes. What has happened? Downtown Detroit, beautiful. Nothing really has happened within this area because Weaver kind of moved out of this area, sold the building. It, the building is now being sold to a, gentr uh, to a place that is against gentrification, although they kicked out everybody in that building already. And just to Emma's point earlier on, it gets so complicated once you look at how these mm -hmm. scenes are actually being in place. Yep. So okay. I love the injection site, Jeff. That's where it kind of wrapped from. <laughs> how it kind of we it cuts into other places, but there's so many complications. Yeah, feel <laughs> careful what you may ask for. You might just get it, right? Yeah, yeah. So I think this is a really interesting case because it it what it also does is point to the problem of actively trying to curate the city. And in a way, graffiti and street art at its most, I don't know, I don't like to use the word, but authentic is, is going against these really formalized processes of, of curation and, you know, like all the, the, you know, the bullshit of commercial art uh, and how that is, is sort of very exclusionary. So then you have this sort of I guess, capitalist, you know, appropriation of, of the art form and then trying to take over. And then you get these kinds of tensions. And I think what would be interesting to come back to now is the question that you sort of posed at the beginning of what does graffiti and street art do uh, in the city? And I think that in these cases, when you have these very contained zones, uh, and very controlled zones, I don't think graffiti and street art really have the possibility to do what they do best, um, which I think is 
to interrupt and, and disrupt the spatial order of the city. Um, and I think that that comes into the urban politics of graffiti and street art, because I think even, even a commission mural can sort of interrupt and, and disrupt space, even if it is legal, even if it is sanctioned, and it doesn't have to be a political piece either, but just the placement and the context. Um, so I think that that when you have these really, really controlled spaces, it kind of interrupts what what graffiti and street art is really best at doing. Mm -hmm. I, that's a great point. Um, I, I, I want to add one uh, point that's relevant here. And I, I think with these kinds of attempts to um, uh, contain uh, graffiti and street art is that the individuals who are uh, uh, being contained, so-called so contained, uh, young people, uh, young adults, uh, often, uh, they, they, are, uh, they know the big agenda. They, they know what's going on, and they may pay lip service to the, to the bigger agenda, but uh, they say, yes, thank you very much for providing paint, for, for providing technical assistance, for providing walls, et cetera, and, but you're only going to, uh, but you're also helping me to then go uh, and engage in this disruptive activity, graffiti and spirit, wherever the hell I choose. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to steal the paint or borrow the paint, uh, whatever. And I'm going to do my stuff wherever I want uh, at whatever time I choose. Uh, and uh, so don't, don't think that you're, you, 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 you've won this battle. Uh, you, you know, so, uh, I don't think I've expressed that as eloquently as I'd like to, but, you know, uh, it's a temporary solution. Uh, you may see it as a bandaid or at least that's how they're thinking. Uh, but I'm going to do my shit on my time on my walls and, uh, don't think this little intervention is going to be your solution to uh, what you think is a big problem because it ain't. That being said, I wonder when it comes to legal graffiti walls, I think, they actually have an important place in, in cities. And I think especially with younger people and having a safe place, because I think what happens in, in jurisdictions where it isn't safe to practice. So when you don't have that freedom to take those materials and go wherever, um, places um, that try to contain graffiti also do have an important, I think, social and cultural function. I think we're often quick to say, well, that's that's not real graffiti and stuff, but but at least in Oslo, where the policies have been so severe and you know really like there hasn't been that same kind of freedom for people to practice graffiti. Um, these are really well used spaces, and I think I'm not sure what it is like in other cities, but I, I know that having painted a bit myself, like it is really nice to have a place where you can go and not worry about getting arrested, not worry about looking over your shoulder to just be able to, to paint in an open space. And I think especially for, for young people, I wonder, um, but I don't know what it is like in the American context if these spaces are, are used the same way. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I absolutely agree with you, Emma. Like, and, and I, I see where you kind of coming from, like, I, I, and I, I do think I have to be very aware of this too, is because I come from a very, um, a perspective in terms of capitalism, right? And the capitalism is this overarching thing that's, that takes anything 
Uh, so, for example, uh, a graffiti writer called it um, a zombie city. So once you have this legality and legal walls and you have legal graffiti and street art, then all of a sudden they become street uh, zombie cities because this is just for folks to look at art, but they're not really participating in it. It becomes this kind of very um, uh, sanitized thing. That's and then, you know, that's a Marxist view in many ways, and I feed right into that. And I love that kind of analysis. But to go back to Emma's point is there are other spaces and Jeff's points too. There, within these legal realms, you can also have disruption. You can also have these moments of learning how to do these things as well, as Emma was saying, with these legal walls and having that freedom to express artistically feelings. Again, I think, you know, to, to go back, what does it do? Like, once you are doing these things on these walls, how does it participate in the life of the city itself? And that's a question that, um, you know, that's a question that you can really start exploring on. Is it, for example, when people allow these legal walls to happen and put a street wall on a corner, is it because you're testing out that corner for an advertisement that will then come in as soon as that street art, you know, it gets the hits, people like it, people are feeling comfortable coming into that area. Someone with a clipboard can say, in this area, these 50 people are looking at this space on this wall, now we can sell it to Coca-Cola. And then we can actually have it up there and we can do that. Those are like, again, what does it do? And, and, and so I absolutely agree that, it, you know, these legal areas can be really important for the development of individuals what does it do later on is a larger question mm. yeah and then there's also the the intermediary argument is some of these programs uh, pro, uh provide jobs for people right so um that's an additional it, well it is a, a means uh of supporting themselves or let's say extra or, or income OK, and, and you can't deny that uh, the, otherwise they might be working, uh, you know, at, uh, uh, you know, you know, go, uh, McDonald's or Starbucks or whatever. Um, so or restaurant uh, in the, you know, uh, uh, you know, doing some sort of uh, menial type job or not. I'm just saying. I'd just like to invite you to also reflect on um, other contexts that you're familiar with. No, I know you've traveled um, the world also of uh, graffiti and um, I very much appreciate your, your analysis of the um, uh, Western European and the North American context, but maybe um, explore, help, help us explore a little more also um, the distinctiveness of, of other contexts and like what, what has struck you there in terms of dynamics around uh, street art and graffiti and it's, and what does it do there? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'll just quickly jump in on this one because I, again, I think Emma's point is really, really well taken with this idea of you have to look at context. So I went to Lebanon, for example, and I'm uh, I'm in Lebanon and I'm talking to different graffiti writers. And I am thinking in terms of graffiti as a city and kind of responding in Lebanon to me reminds me, at least it was five years ago. Uh, it reminded me of New York in the early 70s. There's graffiti all over the place. It's all different types of graffiti. It's really this kind of huge um, scene in there. And I remember talking to uh, somebody about this 
And he said, if you want to be a graffiti writer, you can hit downtown Beirut. You can hit Beirut and you can do this in two nights and you could hit every street. It's a small kind of city in terms of where you have access to. It's all over there. And so what he actually moved, and this is kind of going back to our earlier conversation, he realized like, okay, there's a certain, he grew up on kind of looking at videos from France and looking at different kind of uh, gangster um, uh, rap and looking at kind of uh, looking at uh, graffiti from the seventies in New York and that all that. And what he realized is he wanted something different for his city. He wanted to produce something in which not from a governmental perspective, but from a people perspective that they can join together around street art. And so he has done um, absolutely gorgeous street art. Uh, he, he, for example, has this one uh, piece right in downtown of Ferouz, who's a singer, a Middle Eastern singer, and really does a beautiful um, image of her with calligraphy all around her. And that's where he kind of connected this kind of Middle Eastern view uh, of his art and trying to connect it to the city itself. And this is the point that I want to make. He thinks of himself and he called himself kind of a Robin Hood because what he does is his day job is being in advertising. And he uses that money to go buy paint. And then he'll go onto the streets and he'll rip down all the government posters of elections. And he takes those all down because he sees those as no solution whatsoever. And instead creates these images that can bring generations of Bay Reef folks together, different people together around kind of beautiful images as well in order to love the city itself. And so that's where in that context, I mean, it's illegal, but it, one of the things he's doing is using murals as a way to bring people together. And I think that's an interesting way to think about that. And, and I think stylistically in terms of, you know, the geographic differences between graffiti and, and street art outside of a, you know, a Western context, I, I think there's actually a, a lot more similarities than differences because we are talking about a really global art movement and a global subculture and, of course, with origins in, in the United States. Um, but I mean, because of social media, because of, um, you know, visual culture, like books and films and things, these things have moved back and forth. And, and I think you're, you're having like a lot of, um, when we talk about these, this muralism movement, you're having, a, it's quite international and you have people moving throughout, um, you know, throughout the world. So I think that I also sort of resist this, this kind of wanting to divide it into, um, you know, Western graffiti versus the rest of the world, because I think there is so much movement between it, but of course there are, you know, regional variations and styles and um, in the political context in which people are, are writing. And, and obviously there's differences in the jurisdictions and the, the legalities of whether or not people can practice or not. And then like John mentioned before, with like conflict and crisis that, you know, graffiti and street art is often um, a way to express political discontent and, and to contest what's going on in sort of urban space. So I think, I think, in terms of like the visual language of, of graffiti and street art, I think it, it's more similar than it is 
different, really. I mean, you wouldn't really sort of differentiate painting in the same way. So why would we do it necessarily with graffiti and street art? Um, but I think, um, I think maybe, and, and this is something we haven't really touched on and it goes to like who practices graffiti and street art, I think is also very diverse. We haven't really touched on gender so much. And I think that, um, I think in different places in the world, of course, gender and who has access and rights to the city is very different in different contexts. So whether or not it becomes male dominated depends a lot on, on sort of where graffiti and street art are being done. And I think that's globally. I mean, I think just generally speaking, women and marginalized groups don't have the same access to the city. And so because of that, I think there has been this kind of historic male dominated aspect to this. At least that's how it's been presented. I'm not sure how true that is, or if it's just that you have mostly men writing about graffiti and street art historically as well, and so not really paying attention. But I think that that is really something to, to think about as well as sort of like who is getting and who is able to practice in these different places and spaces. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's an excellent point. And, and the idea of, uh, right, that we, we haven't talked about gender is really an important aspect of this and who has actually access to the city and, and the different complications of wanting to be a graffiti writer walking these streets at different times, I think is a very important point. And Jessica Pavon uh, in Graffiti Girls, for example, does an excellent job kind of looking globally at different specific uh, women-centered graffiti groups throughout the world um, that does that. I do want to hit, though, something that Emma said is this idea that there, the globalization of graffiti, and absolutely when you have these kind of um, uh, festivals that are bringing all different international artists into a city that happened, for example, in Beirut, um, you do have this kind of generic, uh, maybe is too tough of a term, but there is a certain type of street art that is acceptable and that then becomes popular within these festivals that then gets transported to everywhere. I do think though, there's obviously, there's obviously dangers with that. And one of the examples is, and I cannot believe we've been talking for this long and haven't used the word Banksy once, which is fantastic, <laughs> but we haven't. But I think there is, that's this kind of Western view. So Banksy has a certain style I, I, and he's really, really interesting to me. I, I, I like writing about him, I like thinking about him and his work. But anybody who does stencils then is compared to Banksy. And it's Banksy is the overarching light that, or he's, he's a moon that brings everybody else into his orbit. And there's dangers in that because for example, there's this guy from Yemen on during the war torn country, during the uh, recent conflict, he has done some really amazing, amazing art. Um, on the walls of these bombed out areas. His name is Murad Subay, uh, S-U-B-A-Y. And he does some fantastic stuff. And his style is kind of, you can sort of see how it's linked to Banksy in terms of the style, but he does things while Banksy is always ironic, Subay is completely not. It's a different type of, um, uh, uh, of street art. He's done many projects. For example, he has this one project where it says the, um, what is it called? I think it's called um, the walls remember your name 
the walls will remember your name, in which he took victims of the government um, who, who, who just disappeared hundreds and thousands of folks. He found photos of them and then did their photos on walls and had communities come together to show off the photos, to paint together, to work to these things. But if you read anything in the news, uh, any articles, Banksy's name is always referenced whenever you talk about Subway. Subway. So he's always kind of referenced as the Banksy of the Middle East. And I think there's a real danger of doing that because it always gives a privilege to Banksy and the Western view, as opposed to how each one, each area has their own kind of social political uh, uh, connections to what they're doing. It's really interesting, especially since I think when it comes to conflict and, and areas of crisis, that, that the stencil itself is, I think, one of the most used forms of street art because, you know, you, you cut it out and you can, you know, repeat it like many, many places, um, you know, throughout the city. And I think uh, during the Arab Spring and then in, in conflicts in, in Greece as well, you're seeing a lot of the, the use of stencils. And I think the stencil is a really effective political tool. And uh, that's really interesting. Yeah, during the, um, uh, to hear uh, uh, the Egyptian Revolution 2011, Ganzir, um, really kind of what he did was he created a, a, um, a, um, a, a pamphlet in which he had stencils that was spread just through emails to everybody. So you could just print out the stencil and then you could spray on that as this way to kind of connect people together in terms of here's what you can do. You might not have ever done graffiti, you might not know anything about street art, but here's a, you know, the outline of a stencil that you can then, you know, use. So it is this way to kind of bring people together who are outside of this community. That's, yeah, it's interesting that you both of you say that because um, in my study of um, anti-Trump and anti-Trump uh, administration uh, graffiti and street art in uh, Washington, D.C., the majority of, of work that I saw um, both on the streets and, uh, you know, in, in the, some of the back alleys were stickers. Um, and uh, the and my rationale for at least my explanation for why that was taking place is that just because it's so easy to apply a sticker, uh, you know, all you need to do is reach into your pocket and, uh, and, and apply. And, uh, uh, also too, is that the, the sticker has become, uh, I wouldn't say iconic, uh, or, or, or celebrated per se in Washington, DC, but there has been, uh, one of the, uh, galleries uh, that promotes uh, uh, street art and graffiti uh, has had uh, one or more exhibitions on uh, stickers um, and uh, not just local stickers, but stickers uh, throughout the United States and the world. And uh, so there's a lot of sticker activity. And I see a lot of sticker activity both up in New York City and I've seen it in, in Europe too. Light posts, post, you know, mailboxes, utility boxes, um, uh, and then uh, entrance ways to restaurants, coffee shops, that, that sort of thing. A lot of them are commercial related. You know, it's, somebody has a new band, somebody has a new uh, item. And so they want to get some sort of uh, attention with that sticker. And, and they're relatively cheap to produce uh, too. And they can be produced at home for that matter. You don't have to go out to a, uh, a, a coffee shop and, and produce them. 
I think that's a great point, Jeff. And, you know, one of the things as you were talking about that and your article on, uh, on Trump is really good. There's this indica- there's this also impression, and we've been doing this as well, as graffiti is always from kind of a left perspective or a progressive perspective or a subcultural perspective. It's also the other way. The right has absolutely, and, and states have absolutely used street art and graffiti to start promoting their own kind of views. So, you know, you were talking about Trump stickers. Right now, I, I live in Florida, Republican held area. And I just went to a gas station and it's let's go Brandon stickers all over the gas station pump, right? So it's not just, and this is something I think I have to keep reminding myself of, it's not just this kind of left move or radical move or revolutionary move. It also has been used by conservative and state run um, areas as well. So I think that's something to to kind of think about. And and the other thing that as you were talking that I, I was thinking as well, I do want to make this point, especially as a white kind of, um, uh, uh, you know, Westerner, when I go into other areas, it's very easy because there's a global kind of view of graffiti to assume that I know what this graffiti is. And I constantly have to make sure that my biases are checked and that I'm talking to locals who will walk me through their areas and to kind of think through this stuff. Uh, so I'm not just kind of saying, oh, if this is what this means, I have to be very, very careful of that as any researcher should. And a perfect example, I'm walking through Beirut and I see on a street, this um, car with a bomb on it. And immediately I'm like, oh, okay, car bombing. I totally get why that's there. And I, I talk to this person who's walking me around the city and I'm like asking that question. He's like, oh no, no, that has nothing to do with politics. That's where you buy drugs. And that's a symbol where you buy drugs in the neighborhood and that's where they know where the drug spot is. So that's something that we also have to be very careful of is not to put on, this is a Western view of it. So when I go to another area, this is what this means. And we constantly have to have that interaction with activists and locals and people on the, uh, in the areas and have those conversations with them. Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's really interesting about the the sort of political orientation of graffiti and street art, because I think it's it's a danger as social scientists. And if you're a critical social scientist, generally so aligned with the left, um, there is a tendency, I think, in a lot of graffiti and street art scholarship, and especially contemporary, to be sort of, I guess, politically normative and, and that we just assume it's left. And then you get these kind of statements um, within the literature is saying, for example, street art should be, to be authentic, it should be anti-capitalist or it should be against gentrification. And of course, uh, it, it isn't always. And I think we're quick, if you are Marxist, if you are sort of a lot more on the left to, to criticize sort of the use of street art um, as a tool for gentrification or urban redevelopment and these things. Um, but of course, it's not so politically uh, homogenous, and people are having a lot of different interests. And I think it is, I think it is a danger. And I think it's important that we are constantly checking that you know, just because something is illegal doesn't mean it's necessarily, of course, um, you know, socialist or or leftist or yeah. You know. mm-hmm. Yeah. Just I, I think that also highlights uh, a omission, at least in the scholarly studies of graffiti and street art 
is that graffiti and street art that is um, from the right uh, hate graffiti, um, you know, anti-Semitic graffiti. Um, and uh, there, um, there has not been as much uh, attention to it by scholars. It doesn't necessarily mean that there isn't uh, attention to it. The news media and popular media uh, do pay attention to it. Uh, and uh, again, it's not reflective of the whole corpus of what's going on on a regular basis. But, you know, um, th those would lead, I, I, I'm assuming that uh, a handful of in-depth studies, um, scholarly studies, looking at that in different locations uh, could, could be interesting. I, th I think this is when definitions do become really important because I, I would have a tendency to exclude hate, graf hate graffiti. And I wouldn't even, I think, necessarily call it graffiti uh, mm -hmm. when I was speaking about it. And, and that's really interesting because I think it is something that people do kind of like don't want to engage with. But I think it's also because I wouldn't necessarily call that graffiti. I might call that vandalism, which is not a word I like to use very often either. But I think um, this is where, yeah, the definitions do, I think, matter uh, and, and where it is important to make these kinds of distinctions. So when you're saying that, I think, of course, graffiti should be tolerated. I don't think, um, you know, hate crimes should be. So, and yeah, I think this is where we have to be a bit careful with language and definitions. Yeah, it becomes and, and, complicated, though, because like Susan Phillips uh, in her last book, uh, The City Beneath, who mm -hmm. looks at um, uh, graffiti over the years in Los Angeles, she has this chapter in there. It's about um, surfers and their graffiti, which is absolutely anti-Semitic, absolutely mm -hmm. kind of playing with these uh, images of, um, uh, of Nazi symbols and all that stuff. So how does that fit into this idea of graffiti and what it actually means. And, and, you know, I think that's really an interesting question. And I think you're right about that defining, you know, why isn't that graffiti I'm kind of interested in, and we can have a separate conversation on that another time, but like, why isn't that graffiti? And, you know, maybe it's vandalism, but it, it's an interesting question. So yeah, and what I hope everyone is getting that I, whenever I talk about graffiti that I always talk to people about is it's so much more complicated than just looking at a wall and going, oh, there's graffiti. There's so much more that's involved in all of this to try to figure it out. So we layer in Latronella, layer in yarn yeah. bombing, layer in uh, the people who uh, do this uh, guerrilla gardening uh, and make a place that a place that's a, a boring uh, lot that's uh, refuse strewn and and beautify it by putting in uh, by putting in uh, you know uh, uh, plants and so on and so forth only to have it be ripped out uh, by either the owner or by the city or uh, and, and then things can get a little bit complicated and, and th then sometimes it seems like you know it's that old um, adage about uh, you know referees and in a ball game and and uh, their ability to call a you know something a a, a, a strike or not so uh, yeah it's complicated but it's also what makes the whole field interesting. Let's um, have a concluding round and I'd like to invite <laughs> you um, to reflect on on your role as researchers of graffiti and street art in relation to the broader public, or maybe also specifically 
um, in relation to this contested field of, of practice? How, how do you see yourself relating? For me as a, I guess, a critical urban geographer and cultural geographer, I think graffiti and street art are, is useful as a lens to keep asking really critical questions about the city, um, to ask questions about um, how is this space used by whom, um, but also who has access to the city, who has access to the space and really fundamentally um, who has the right to the city. And I think for me, that's this just overarching question that is always behind when I'm writing or reading about graffiti and street art is thinking about who has the right to do these things, who is saying if that this space can't be used for something or it should be used for something else. So I think that graffiti and street art is a really useful way of looking at these very like critical um, questions about the city. And I, and I also think it's very engaging for the reader as well. So you can talk about capitalism, you could talk about gentrification, you can talk about urban development, you can talk about these big urban questions through a medium that's very engaging and interesting and, and that gets a lot of attention from, from students, especially in an education context. So I think for me, it's, it's really an interesting lens to pose very critical questions on the city. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, one of the things, and I spoke about this a little bit before, I, I think my view has been evolving. So one of the first projects I, I did was a digital kind of humanities projects with um, a class. I was in this city in uh, Florida. Uh, and, you know, I was talking to my students and they said, there's no graffiti in Lakeland. And I, and I said, I'm sure there is. So we actually did the project where we took, you know, I think it was like 10 blocks and I had the students just go to those 10 blocks and take a picture of every time they saw any graffiti. And so they had to go into the back alleys, they had to look in different areas. And suddenly they had, you know, many, many photos. And this realization that there's something happening within the city that on the surface they didn't even recognize. And so there was a resistance to what the city is saying, there was a resistance to that. And that's how I started. But now my ideas have really evolved and I'm really interested more in terms of what kind of what Emma was saying is like the idea of graffiti or street art or muralism, that's really interesting from aesthetic point of view, but I'm more interested in the political point of views that are there that is not just, oh, this is resistance, but really look at how it is part of this larger issue of racial capitalism. It's an issue of class. It's an issue of interrelationships between poor and working class folks and rich folks and middle-class folks. So it's really this larger political economy question that I'm really interested in. And not only from a very staid Western perspective, but then once we start looking at really areas in conflict that whether it's you know New Orleans after Katrina, um, Detroit after uh, bankruptcy or you know, Egypt after the revolution or, you know, Lebanon during the Ustink protests. Like there's so many different larger questions that graffiti can be our entrance into, but then it reveals things that we might not have known without starting with graffiti. And so that's, that's where I'm kind of interested in, in, in continuing to go. Okay, so the question was, uh, if uh, I've uh, interpreted correctly, is how, is how do I see my role 
uh, as a researcher in the field of graffiti and street art. And so I think like, like John, uh, I see my role uh, as evolving. And so it's probably three steps. Number one is uh, uh, initially and, and continuously, it's to understand what uh, graffiti and street art is and, it's, uh, and how, uh, how it evolved and how it's changing. And that means uh, reading as much as I can, both uh, from a scholarly uh, point of view and also looking at popular depictions of uh, graffiti and street art and, and, and walking the streets and the back alleys and the places and talking to people, not only who are engaging in graffiti and street art, but the people who are reacting to it, uh, you know, law enforcement, uh, art critics, journalists, uh, the, uh, the, those types of people, and also, you know, networking with other scholars. That's, that's, and then the second one is probably uh, communicating my knowledge to uh, a, a wider audience uh, what graffiti is and what uh, street art is and, and, and it's the, the, and why it is, why it is just so uh, interesting, complicated and, and fascinating. And then also, I guess, three, is trying to contribute to what I see as uh, a, a, an emerging, and, and as as as, as uh, John and Emma have, have have noted, it's you know it's been going on for at least three decades. This kind of social scientific study of graffiti and street art. So I want to contribute in a in a meaningful way, and I ask myself on a regular basis, how can I uh, contribute in a meaningful way? Um, and I not only do I ask myself this, I, I, I ask my colleagues, you know, how can I best do that? And uh, this, uh, this, this, this changes uh, uh, as, as, as time progresses. Yeah, this has been an amazing conversation. Thank you all three, uh, Emma, Jeff and John for, uh, for sh sharing your insights and um, yeah, hope to talk to you soon. Thanks. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks you for listening. For more information, visit our website urbanpolitical.podigy.io. Please subscribe and follow us on Twitter.